Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for the truth that sets us free. And Lord, you're showing us how privileged we are to have this truth. And Lord, we pray and ask that as we go forward in this study, we pray that you would send the greatest of all teachers and preachers, the Holy Spirit, to us. To enlighten us, Lord. To show us great things out of thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, some people were asking me, they said, hey, where can I get a copy of the presentation? As far as the audio, um, it's going to be on Audioverse, but as far as the, the visual presentation, there's a little piece of paper here. After the uh, session, you can fill it out, and you can just write your email. I promise you I won't spend, send you spam mail, or the fact that I won lottery in the UK, and you're part of that uh, winning. Today's presentation is entitled, The Bible and Genocide, Finally Some Answers. Finally Some Answers. I'm going to start off by sharing uh, you, uh, with you the, uh, just the story of this man, Elie Wiesel. Does anybody know who this individual is? A very interesting man, a very interesting man. He was actually in the Jewish intern camps. He came out and he, just, he has just done some wonderful things. And he has met with various leaders, he has met with various presidents, and he speaks on tolerance for all races. Can you say amen to that? God hates racism. He hates anything that has to do with the thinking of, of caste. But God loves all people. But this individual, he wrote some books. His current position religiously is, he goes back and forth between agnosticism, in other words, believing there's something out there but not knowing, and theism, believing that there is a God. He goes back and forth. And you will find the doubt expressed in a lot of his books. But he wrote about a very interesting encounter. This is actually a picture of him. You'll notice him in the second row at the top. He was a young man. But he describes the horrors of being in a Jewish internment camp. But then he said one day while he was laying in his bed, he noticed something. He popped his head out because he heard some talking. And there he looked, and right there in the middle of the hallway that was right there between the two sides of the room, which had beds on it, he noticed four rabbis. What did he notice? Four rabbis. And he saw these four rabbis doing something unusual. And one of the rabbis put his hand up in the air and he said, I'd like to call this court case into order. The individual who is being tried right now is God Almighty. And so Eli Wiesel was watching this whole thing and he was watching this thing play out as these rabbis were having a mock trial. And some of these rabbis would stand up and they would accuse God of crimes. They would accuse God of all the evil things that he has done. At the very end of it, he, the judge stands up and he says, I pronounce God guilty. He said he beheld this whole thing and it really changed his concepts about who God is. Folks, you can imagine that people who have been through some trying circumstances, people who have been through some of the most uh, difficult things in life, things that you or me will never ever deal with, probably it's very interesting to know how quickly they would change their religious beliefs. And this world is a world of ideas, amen? And it's very important that we get the right ideas. And I like what uh, my, one of my favorite Christian apologists says. He says this, the truth is the most important thing in the world. It's so important, it's often hidden by a bodyguard of lies. Folks, we need to understand the truth about who God is. Amen? Amen. And that's what's encapsulated in the Adventist message. 
But you take a look at this world today, you see some of the most vicious things, you see some of the horrors of past history of the Rwanda genocide. You read about genocides that are still taking place today as we speak. You read about all sorts of evil things that have taken place in Earth's histories, and many people question the goodness of God, the loving kindness of God, the justice of God, if all these wicked things are taking place. It's very interesting, even in India right now, there is a genocide taking place as we speak. You know what I praise God for? That one day, during the thousand-year judgment, God will make all things clear. Amen? And I love what Ellen White says as we get into this topic about genocide in the Old Testament. She makes a very remarkable claim. She says this will, be, um, this will take place at the very end. She says this, Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy has now been made plain. The results of rebellion, the fruits of setting aside the divine statutes, having been laid open to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government of God has been presented to the whole universe. Now watch this. Satan's own works condemn him. God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness stand fully, what? Vindicated. Now this is the most beautiful part. It is seen that in all his dealings in the great controversy, that all his dealings in the great controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds that he has created. In other words, what we will understand at the very end is that all of God's dealings, his intentions and motivations have always been best for all of humanity. And I praise God because this needs to give us, this will give us a, a good perspective as we're looking at the Old Testament. But note, know this, this is very important that anything that God has done or has allowed to take place has always been done for what motivation? To the eternal good of his created beings. Can you say amen to that? And that's very important to notice because as we get into this, we need to understand some very simple things. The whole idea of genocide, this idea that God is exterminating people, that he has completely wiped out people in the Old Testament, has often been used by skeptics and infidels to show that God himself is not consistent, that the God of the Old Testament is much different than the God of the New Testament. And it's good for us to worship Jesus, but the guy in the Old Testament, whoo, we ought to run for that guy right there. But you're going to discover that the God of the New Testament is still the God of the Old Testament. Can you say amen to that? God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now let's get into this first line of reasoning we need to understand. God does not violate his own law. Amen? His law is simply a transcript of his own character. The first thing that people tend to bring up when it comes to the things that were taking place in the Old Testament is that God kills. Well, let's take a good look at, first of all, the commandment. In some translations of the Bible, the second commandment is stated, Thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. The Hebrew word used is ratzach. It means literally to dash into pieces, to murder, or to be a manslayer. But does God ever take life? Yes, he does. Does he murder? No. The difference being one is justified and one simply is not. The justification always requiring the most necessary circumstances and the most selfless motives. And in today's world, you will see why sometimes the taking of life is completely justified and no one will argue that point. Murder then would be the unjustified taking of life and very incorrect intentions underlining the actions themselves. Jesus himself equivocated murder with being angry without a what? 
cause. So the difference between murder and the taking of life is that murder is unjustified taking of life. So when God has to take life, he is in no way violating his own law. Can you say amen to that? The law is a transcript. Even Jesus said, the law is written in my own heart, right? Quoting from Psalms 40. Now this individual, he's a well-known atheist. We learned a little bit about him. He was somebody, if you read some of his books, The God Delusion or The Selfish Gene, he makes a point to point out that God is a genocidal maniac of the Old Testament. He makes a point to show that God commanded the destruction of little kids, of babies, that this God is a mass murderer. But I also want you to see the inconsistency with this individual, too. This man actually wrote a book called The Spirit and the Song, and this is what he said. There was a well-known television chef who did a stunt recently by cooking human placenta and serving it up as a pad thai fried with shallots, garlic, and lime juice. Everyone said it was delicious. The father had several helpings. A scientist can paint out, as I have done, that this is actually an act of cannibalism. Worse, since cloning is such a live issue at the moment because the placenta is a true genetic clone of the baby. Science cannot tell you if it is right or wrong to eat your own baby's clone, but it can tell you that, it can tell you that is what you are doing. Then you can decide for yourself whether you think it is right or wrong. This is the same individual who's basically saying there's no, nothing wrong. It's up to you to decide whether or not this is wrong, this particular idea of eating someone's placenta. And that he's also saying on the other side, hey, God is a genocidal maniac. But if you take a good look at it, you can see that there is an inconsistency with what this individual, this published atheist himself, is believing. Very interesting to note as we continue in this understanding. As we take a good look in the Old Testament, we'll find that God many times commanded the Israelites to do some very unusual acts, some strange acts. It all began when the God freed the children of Israel from Egypt. He freed them from Egyptian rule, and so he sent them into the land. And this is what the Bible says right here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1-2. The Lord your God brings you into a land which you shall go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. God gave the specific command, I'm going to send you to the very heart of the world at that time. Actually, what's very interesting, the, uh, the geographical region of Canaan, or Israel, was completely surrounded by huge nations. It was of itself the very center. And what God was trying to do, he was sending the people right into the very core, or the heart of this planet. And he had a very intentional uh, reason for that. And that is that the gospel could spread to the entire world. It would be the most important place to drop, you could say, the payload. And when the payload would be dropped in that specific area, it then would bring the cure upon the entire world, thus helping the entire world uh, with the problem of sin. So it was very specific and strategic of God to make sure that the children of Israel, the, uh, the pre preservers of truth, would get to the very center of this world. And that was the area of Israel or Canaan. And so God gave them a very interesting command. 
He said, I want you to go into this land, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to also pay attention to this, that God sent his people, but they were not racially motivated in conquest. In other words, it wasn't that they simply just, oh, we don't like these people, we hate them, we hate the color of their skin, we hate the way they look or what, the, you know, or just who they are. Rather, it was geographically motivated, not racially motivated in conquest. But what you will find out in recent history is that genocide, actual genocide, is racially motivated. It is racially motivated. In fact, when Hitler would, uh, was beginning his conquest, he would send out his SS to exterminate Jews, not just in Germany, but in other parts, other neighboring countries. He actually had a hatred for these Jews. What's also interesting is that God never sent his people to go destroy the Canaanites in the other country, or in the other countries nearby. It was specific to this one area. In other words, there was a geograph geographical motivation as opposed to a racial motivation. And that's very important to understand as we continue in this. In fact, there was a very special law. It was provision for the aliens in the land or the foreigners. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, 34. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not, what's that next word? mistreat him, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Did God command the Israelites to teach, treat strangers or aliens and foreigners correctly? Amen. In fact, if you think that God was just bent on destroying all these nations, what you will find out is these very nations or, or lands that God sent people into, if some of the people wanted to join Israel, they could. Case in point, story of Rahab. Story of Rahab, she was a Canaanite. And she wanted to join the Israelites, and there was no problem with that whatsoever. And this is important to also note, because God gave very specific commands about how to deal with those. When you even take a good look at the fourth commandment, it protects the foreigner. Can you say amen to that? God cares about people, amen? Principles of war. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 11 through 12. When you go near to a city to fight against it and then proclaim then proclaim an offer of what peace to it and it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you this was a time of war and so god gave very specific commands that uh, when israel would go out conquering when they would attack these other nations that if they came across them they were first to offer what an offer of peace let us have a treaty Right? And this is important to understand because you see how God actually carried out some of these uh, principles right here. But then there's more to this. Take a good look at this. Then you shall do to all the cities which are very, this you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. Now watch what God says, and he points his finger right on the problem. But of the cities of these peoples, which are the Lord your God gives you as inheritance, you shall let nothing breathe remain alive, and you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Prezite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now watch this, lest they teach you to do according to all their, what? Abominations. And by the way, that same word abomination is also found when God gives commands for people not to have sexual relations with animals, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Notice this. This is very specific. God is sending the children of Israel to go clear out the land. 
And God gave them a very interesting warning. He says, be careful and make sure you utterly wipe them out because if you don't, they're going to come back and they're going to corrupt you. And they will teach you to do according to all their abominations. God wanted the destruction of Canaanite religion more than of the Canaanite themselves. Do you remember when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan? The very first city they came across was what? Jericho. Now this is where it gets very interesting right here. This is what Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets. Jericho was one of the principal seats of idol worship, being especially devoted to Ashereth, the goddess of the moon. Here centered all that was vilest and most degrading in the religion of the Canaanites. In other words, the very first city that they were to deal with and utterly destroy was none other than the city of Jericho. Ellen White alludes, she points in and she says, out of all the cities in Canaan, out of all the, the uh, people, this was the most degrading and the most vilest of all of them. This was the first opponent of Israel. And had Israel failed to do this job, they would come back and they would utterly destroy Israel. Very interesting. In fact, what they discovered about this city is very, very interesting. Sacred occultic prostitution was practiced in order to ensure the fertility of the land. Fertility of the field, flock, and family was thought to depend upon the sexual relations between Baal and Noth. According to a pattern of sympathetic magic, the worshippers of Baal imitated the actions they desired Baal to perform. Thus, male and female worshippers engaged in sacred sexual acts in the temple in order to assure for themselves the blessings of nature. And this is very important. They hone in, the historians hone in, and they said, this land was known for ritual prostitution. Ritual what? Now watch the second thing they were known for. Another practice associated with the Canaanites, holy places, was child sacrifice. Two things, ritual prostitution and what? Child sacrifice. By the way, when they first come into the land, they hide under a woman's house, under a woman's roof. What was her name? Rahab. What was she? A prostitute. You want to know what's very interesting? Did she have any children? She had no children. She saved her household, right? When she got out, she married an Israelite. What was her child's name? Boaz. There would not have been Boaz if she stayed in that city. Because they did sacrifices of the firstborn. You know why Boaz is so important? Because he married who? Ruth. And who's Ruth? The great-grandma of... David, and who's David? The uh, symbolic father of? Jesus. In fact, do you want to know what the word, where the word cannibal, cannibal comes from? Cannibalism? Two words, Canaan and Baal. <laughs> Historians record that these priests would actually eat the firstborn. That's where cannibalism, that's where you get that word from. You can check it out for yourself. Cannibalism, that word comes from Canaan and their worship of Baal. They were doing some demented things with children. And so God says, this place needs to be wiped out. And we'll continue understanding a little bit more. Let's take a look at their history. These were actually two historians right here. There was in their city a bronze image of Kronos extending its hands, palms up, sloping towards the ground, so that each of the children, when placed therein, rolled down and fell into a sort of gaping pit filled with fire. Another historian says this, The whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums, so that the cries of wailing of the children being sacrificed should not reach the ears of the people. This was actually taking place later on in time, but they were still carrying forth those same practices. 
Canaanites, by the way, is also a generic term for all the other nations that were in the land of Canaan as well. So you see some of the evil things that were taking place here, some really demented things here. This historian talks a little bit more. 1921, the largest cemetery of sacrificed infants in the ancient Near East was discovered at Carthage. It is well established that in this rite of child sacrifice originated in Phoenicia, ancient Israel's northern neighbor, and was brought to Carthage by its Phoenician colonizers. Hundreds of burial urns filled with the cremated bones of infants, mostly newborns, but even some children up to age six years old, as well as animals, have been uncovered at Carthage. Therefore, the Carthaginians, believing that the misfortune had come to them from the gods, betook themselves to every manner of supplication of divine power. In their zeal to make amends for their mission, they sacrificed 200 of the noblest children and sacrificed them publicly. Now, when you take a good look at what was taking place there, you can see why God had to make sure the problem was taken care of. In fact, God gave several warnings in the book of Deuteronomy, do not go after your, their gods, otherwise you will be sacrificing your children. Now, if there was a country across the sea that was doing this, who wouldn't support an armed force going over there to go stop them? Who wouldn't support that? But I want you to also pay attention to this, okay? But as some of these things were taking place, God had to make sure that they were completely wiped out in dealing with them. In fact, what they also discovered is this. The Bible warns about uh, sacrificing your children in the Valley of Tophet. And what's interesting about the Valley of Tophet, that's where the Valley of Hinnom is. You know what Hinnom is? Kiana. That was, the that was the place that Jesus referred to in talking about hellfire. They were sacrificing their firstborns at this place. They found this inscription, To Our Lady, to Tanit, the face of Baal, and to Our Lord, to Baal Haman, that was vowed by Finn, son of Finn, because he, the deity, heard the voice and, the bless and best blessed him. What they found underneath this rock sculpture were hundreds of urns of children. Of children. This is something that was taking place on a massive scale. It wasn't something like one or two. This was on a massive scale these things were taking place. In the very heart or center of this earth, the devil set up the most vilest worship practices. You know why? Because he was trying to corrupt the picture that God would send his firstborn. He set it up right in the very center so when the Israelites were trying to understand the picture of redemption and they saw this disgusting picture of these firstborns being killed. And by the way, Yellen White talks about patriarchs and prophets that when Abraham came into the land of Canaan, you know what he noticed on the mountaintops? Human sacrifices. She says this was the first thing he noticed. And by the way, when God then tells Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn, he, he, he's questioning it. He, he's like, I don't get, why would you do this? God would never require something like that. He knew that it was inconsistent, incompatible with the God he had come to love and know. But he followed through with, the God, with God's voice, and sure enough, God said, no, 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 you don't need to do this. I'm going to send my first son. Amen? Genesis chapter 15 and 16, there's something remarkable that takes place here. God was about to send the Israelites to go destroy a nation. It says this, but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the, what? Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, before God sent Israel to judge a nation or to take out a nation, he had to wait until they were at a level of intolerability. He allowed four generations to pass before he would say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. 
And when a nation would reach that point where they crossed some serious lines, God says to Israel, you need to stop them right now. You need to put them out right now. Utterly wipe them out. Get rid of them. Destroy the religion of the Canaanites. It has so infected the Canaanites themselves, they need to be completely wiped out. And had they not been wiped out, they would have eventually grown and infected other worlds, other, other nations and lands. And so God was using what you can call spiritual surgery to deal with these Amorites. It's also very interesting to note this. Ellen White talks about inherited sin. She says, by inheritance, an example of the sons, the example, the sons become partakers of the father's sin. Wrong tendencies, perverted appetites, and debased morals, as well as physical disease and degeneracy, are transmitted as a legacy from father to son to the third and where? Fourth generation. In other words, sin transmits all the way to the fourth generation. It's very interesting. When God talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know what he's talking about? Generations of godly people. Like the picture of, the godly, of a godly people. The grandpa, the father, the son. That picture right there. But these Amorites, God even allowed them one more generation before they finally reached that point where they were doing some wicked, heinous things. Very ugly that God had to finally say to them, enough is enough, wipe them out. Language of destruction. This is a very interesting point to notice too. Moreover, Deuteronomy 7 verse 2 to 5 uses the words utterly destroy, immediately followed by you shall not intermarry among them, highlighting the fact that, at least in some instances, the biblical authors employed rhetorical exaggeration. All that breathes, utterly destroyed, common to the ancient Near military accounts, ancient Near East military accounts. It's very interesting, I was looking at the report of one um, Middle Eastern conqueror, and when he would talk about his battle with Israel, he says, I utterly destroyed them, I utterly wiped them out. But in actuality, he just defeated them. He didn't completely destroy them. But there was this exaggeration in language used to indicate the intensity of that battle. We use that when we're talking about the destruction of the wicked at the end of time. Forever and ever. God is using exaggeration to show. It's not about quantity, but it's about quality. Like this is an intensity that is happening here. And so oftentimes, God would say, you need to completely wipe them out. This was something that was being used in other, other cultures around that time. This leaves open the possibility that these phrases may express some degree of hyperbolic language, and thus that no non-combatants were actually killed. Is this similar to a jihad? That's very interesting to note some of this. This was actually in the Quran, and this is what it says. Quran, not Quran. When you meet your enemies who are polytheists, that means believe in more than one God, invite them to three courses of actions. You can always see where this is going. If you respond to any one of these, you also accept it and withhold yourself from doing them any harm. Invite them to Islam. In fact, you know what the word Islam means? Submission. Um, forceful submission. If they respond to you, accept it from them and desist from fighting against them. If they refuse to accept Islam, demand from them jizya. If they agree to pay, accept it from them and hold off your hands. And if they refuse to pay the tax, seek Allah's help and fight them. What's interesting is this. God never commanded the destructions of these other nations, pay attention to what I'm about to say, purely because they rejected God as their God. You know you know this? It's because one day Jesus is walking by with his disciples and the disciples found out that Samaria rejected them, and you know what the disciples say to Jesus? Shall we call down fire and what? Utterly destroy them. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? 
You don't know what spirit you are. I did not come in this world to condemn, but to save. In other words, God does not destroy nations simply because of the fact they merely reject him as being their God. In fact, when you do a study of Revelation chapter 20 and you find out when God shows the spectrum of those who are lost and those who are saved, those who are outside the gates and those who are inside the gates, what you will discover is that more are outside the gates for violations of the last six commandments than they are of the first four. What do the last six commandments have to do with? Our relation to man. In other words, more people aren't out of the gates because of their, their wrong belief about what day to worship God. More people are out of heaven because of the way they treated each other. One of the reasons why God commanded the destruction of their nation is not simply because they rejected him as God. Many nations did that. But because their behavior had reached a point where God says, the line is drawn right here. The line is drawn right here. And it's very interesting when you begin to see this. And we're going to look a little bit deeper into this. God used not only Israel to judge other nations, but these nations themselves were used to bring judgment upon Israel. In other words, God wasn't just completely favorite towards Israel. He would use nations of Babylon and Egypt and Assyria to bring the same judgment that Israel was bringing upon others. Actually, Ellen White talks about this concept, and she says this, that where greater light is shown, there is a greater measure of accountability. A greater measure of accountability. And what's so interesting is that many of these nations that were destroyed by God, they would actually know about the miracles and the power and the plan of God prior to their destruction. When, God came, when the Israelites came to the city of Jericho and those, two, and those two spies went into Jericho and they were hidden under Rahab's roof, what did she say about their God? We have heard about your God and the miracles he has done in Egypt. We saw what you guys did when you guys crossed the, valley of the, when you crossed the river of Jordan. You think about Babylon. Who did God send to Babylon? Daniel and his three friends, right? Even Nebuchadnezzar saw Jesus in the midst of the fire. You see, when God has to finally take action, he wants you to understand that he has done everything he has, can to actually save them without violating their freedom. With their freedom, without violating their freedom. Well, what about the children? Now, this is a very interesting point. Don't miss this point right here. Now, I, don't, I believe there are answers, but I don't believe there are easy answers. Amen? People ask the question, why would God command the destruction of children? And again, as I said before, I don't have um, all the answers. But this is a very important point to notice right here. That when the children of Israel failed to accomplish the work completely, their mistakes would come back to haunt them. God commanded the destruction of the Amalekites by Saul. But do you know what happened? Because he failed to do it, Generations later, a man by the name of Haman, in the story of Esther, look what the Bible says, because of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews to annihilate them, had cast pure to consume them and destroy them. Whenever they failed to do it, those who were left over would come back to destroy Israel. Do you know that this man, Haman, he's an Amalekite. You know why he, he was seeking to destroy? Look what the Bible even calls him, the enemy of the Jews. He, for some reason, when you read the book of Esther, he has this intense hatred of Jews. It doesn't even say why, but when you go back into the history, you realize why, because these two nations were at war. And where Israel failed to do the job, the descendants of the opposing nation would come back and seek to utterly destroy them. And by the way, did Haman almost completely annihilate the Jews? Almost. He almost did it. He almost succeeded in this. And so you can imagine what the options were then. 
What are the options then? When you come into a land, you destroy the land. The children are left alive. What are the options? The options are this. You let that child simply suffer and die and completely starve to death in the wilderness. Okay, that doesn't work. Option number two. You take that child in. Now imagine this. The child grows up and learns about the nations that now are taking care of him, murdered his mother and father. What do you think the issues are going to be? Do you see what God was faced with? How he had to make tough decisions. Tough decisions. I don't see how to know all these answers, but I want you to understand something, that anything God did, he did it with always, always the eternal good of the people. And by the way, I'm going to make this point, and I mean this 100%. Because somebody is taken in judgment does not necessarily mean that they are being judged. You hear what I just said? Because somebody is taken in judgment, it does not necessarily mean they are judged. You say, give me an example. Moses. Moses was not allowed to go into the Holy Land. Why? Because of his sin. But was he judged? He was judged. He was taken in judgment. He died on the, on the mountain. He died on the mountain. Yet yeah, you know he's in heaven right now. Aaron, the priest, the Bible says because of his transgressions, he was stripped of his priestly garments on that mountain as well, on a different mountain. He was taken in judgment. But you know he's going to be saved. I was reading the story of great controversy when they're uh, describing the destruction of Jerusalem, how there was this prophet who was sent, who was going back and forth for several years in the city where there, the siege was taking place, and he was telling people that woe is coming upon them. He was man sent by God, yet he himself was destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Just because somebody is taken in judgment does not necessarily mean they are judged, that they are judged. And that's God's work. And I praise God for Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of this earth do right? Amen? Shall not the judge of this earth do right? Ellen White says this in Patriarchs and Prophets. She makes some very interesting statements. And you can imagine the position that God is put in. Unless punishment had been speedily visited upon transgression, the same results would again have been seen. In other words, there would have been a duplication of what was taking place. God had to stop an infection, and that infection was at the very heart of the earth. Unless punishment had been speedily visited upon transgressions, the same results would have been seen. The earth would have become, become as corrupt as in the days of Noah. By the way, you want to know why so little is said about the pre-flood world? Because what they were doing was so heinous, it was wicked probably even just to talk about it. That's why the Bible minimizes the language there. Not to give people any ideas because of the, the length or the depth of wickedness they had came to, come to. It was, now pay attention to this, the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgment upon millions. Now you say to yourself, well that's not fair. It's not fair because you don't know the future. God knows the future, so he has to act in accordance with what he knows. Can you say amen to that? And he knows very well what the options are. He knows what's on the table, and he knows that if he carries out a specific action, then he knows what the effects of that action were. And you can imagine that the, probably the person who was most pained in making this decision was none other than God himself. To save the many, he must punish the few. She goes on. It was not just mercy to millions, but watch what she says right here. And it was no less a mercy to sinners themselves that they should be cut short in their evil course. In other words, as they continued to live, they would heap more and more judgment upon themselves. God says, no, I'm putting you out of your misery. I don't want you to suffer long in the judgment. 
Had their lives been spared, the same spirit that led them to rebel against God would have been manifested in hatred and strife among themselves. And watch what she says. They would have eventually destroyed one another. You can see the position that God was put in in trying to deal with these nations that were infecting the very center, the strategic center of this planet. Jesus has had to make some tough decisions. He's had to make some tough decisions. He knows more about those people than we do. And he knows all about their lives and the intricacies of their lives. He knows all about their upbringing and their purposes. He knows all about their motives. He knows all about the things they've cultivated and inherited. And he has dealt with them with their eternal good in mind. That has been the motive of all God's dealings in the Old Testament. But what's so interesting is this. There is one of the most unusual psalms in the Bible. I read this. Now, I said to you that I was born and raised a Hindu. I come from a Sikh background also. I read this on my birthday last year. I felt like it was a birthday psalm for me. I just opened it up, and it was totally one of those moments where you just, you, just, <gasps> you know God is speaking to you. Psalms 87. A psalm of the song of Korah. A song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So in other words, the writer is taken up to New Jerusalem and he's hearing the conversation about the New Jerusalem at the end of time. He's hearing the most unusual things being spoken there. And watch what he hears. Selah, I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and with Ethiopia, this one was born there. In other words, what this writer is hearing about, he is hearing about these many individuals who come from those nations who are actually in heaven. And their birthplace is being recorded. And so this writer is hearing this, and watch what he says, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people, this one was born there. In other words, God knows where every person was born. He knows all about their birth. And I read that, I was like, God, you know about me. You know where I was born. You know all about that day that I came out. Right? Indians come out with a full head of hair, by the way. He, he knows that. He knows all the hair on their head. And it's very interesting, when they're talking about all the redeemed, there are people who are coming from the land of, of Babylon. People who are coming from Philistia. These were some of the nations that God commanded to be destroyed. And apparently they make it to heaven. Some of them make it to heaven. It was so awesome because the next time I read that psalm was on my mother's birthday. I didn't even know it was her birthday. Typical son. I really believe God was saying to me, you know, your mom who's not converted now, who's born in a different land, in the midst of Hinduism, I know all about her birth. I know all about her birth. I really believe God was giving me a special promise about the future. Folks, I want you to understand something, that God has this very special plan, and that's to bring all people of all nations, of all tribes, of all genders, of all lands into his fold. And he says, he says there are those who have other flocks, and they will hear me because they know the voice of their shepherd. You know, I dealt with my uncle and my uncles when I became a Christian, and when I dealt with them in, in the very beginning of my Christian experience, it was very difficult because they uh, were at odds with my decision. I was at odds with their decision. New Christians, you're very zealous. You come at it with all the guns blazing, right? 
Didn't work. Psalm earlier this year. My uncle was visiting from India. Old man. And he's going back to India. And I probably won't. I'm not going to see him again. Doesn't look like he has too much longer to live. And I was praying. I said, God, I failed the last time I reached out to him. I may never see him again. Can he do something special this time? So he sat down with my uncle right before he's about to take off to go to the airport. Hindu uncle, very zealous. My other Hindu uncle was there, very zealous, people. I mean, zealous as you can be. So they're there, and they start talking. They said, so, they said, Anal, uh, where, where, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in Modesto. They said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm pastoring still, like I told you last month, you know, and... Anyways, they're like, oh, okay, good. So what, what do you guys believe in? Do you guys believe the Bible? And I was like, yeah, I believe in the Bible and these, all these things. And I'm just in my mind, I'm just like, Lord, I really don't want this to be like last time I talked with them about Jesus, about you. Please, please help. And I was just praying, and I was like, yeah. They're like, so what, what, what does the Bible say about this? So I was telling them, and I was telling them about forgiveness of sins, and I was really getting nowhere with them. I was getting nowhere with these guys. And finally... It came out. I said, you know what's so interesting? The Bible talks about a special day in the future. And it was just that moment, just like now, where it seemed like the air just got thicker. I said, the Bible talks about the future and describes the scene in Zechariah chapter 13. The Bible says that many will come to him in that day and say, where did you get the scars on your hands? And the Lord himself will reply, I was wounded in the house of my friends. In other words, two things. Number one, I told him, I said, one day there's going to be Hindus and Muslims who are going to be in heaven and they're going to be blown away by something when they see the scars on his hands. At that moment, they were just like, like I knew that light was penetrating their minds and they were getting a beautiful picture of God a God who does not judge based upon ignorance, but one who gives light and desires light to grow. And it was so awesome because I knew that the Spirit of God was striving with these men. I don't know their future. I know the Lord does. But folks, we're going to be surprised and get to heaven. And we're going to find the most beautiful things there. And we're going to be so blown away and realize that God has always acted for the eternal good of his people. This seminar, I could spend like three or four seminars. There's much more information to share, but you do get a glimpse. Have you been blessed by this presentation? Amen. You feel like you know a little bit more about the Old Testament? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you that nobody here has to give their firstborns away because you gave yours away first. Thank you for his righteousness, Lord, and his blood that is shed for our sins. And Lord, we praise you, not because the demons are subject to us, but because our names are written in heaven. Lord, we have property in heaven right now. We have property there. And I thank you that you know the birthplace of every person here and all the people of the world, of all the people of the Old Testament. You know their birthplace, God. You know all about them. Father, we pray that as we continue to learn and grow, Jesus, bless us with a sweeter experience with you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.